You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It is time to kill superannuation stone cold dead. There isn't a plastic surgeon in the world that could bring this dead, stinking carcass called superannuation and make it look attractive, I can assure you of that. Because superannuation is a lie. of the shimmering haze, perhaps brought on by global warming, a stranger rode into town, and his name was Jared Rennick. Senator Rennick. Senator Rennick, that is. A Liberal National Party Senator from Queensland. He might be a climate denier, but he knows superannuation stinks to high heaven. Which leaves me very politically confused. <laughs> Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed Everyone, Everyone in, in our, our community, community has, has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on this Friday the 23rd of July. Anne? Hello, Kevin. Hello, Larry and Larissa, our listeners. I always like it that we're a nice foursome. <laughs> you did mention that um, during Radiothon that uh, uh, Larissa mm. is actually a person who uh, who supports... Larissa is an actual Larissa. I was so excited to see Larissa donating to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. And other people did too. So thank you to everybody out there who might have put in for our show. Your support is very much appreciated. We do understand that there are more than two listeners out there, which is very exciting. Yeah, so <laughs> it feels like we're getting the love. That's all good. Now, um, this week, mm-hmm. who are we talking to this week? Well, this week we're going to hear from a economist Dr Cameron Murray who has investigated this issue of superannuation. Okay. Perhaps we should just explain what superannuation is and as far as I understand it is an amount that's taken out of your paycheck before you see it and then it's deposited into a thing called a superannuation account and you can't supposedly get access to it until you reach retirement age. Is that pretty much what it is? Yes. And Cameron Murray looked at that in a book that he co-authored with Paul Freitas. What's the, what's the name of that book, Anne? That book is The Game of Mates. Yeah, yeah. That book was all about these various ways that the elites of Australia are sucking up wealth <laughs> into their own pockets from the rest of the public. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Cameron Murray, who is an economist 
Your work covers a lot of areas in the economy from a very interesting perspective. And I did read in your bio that you say you've got a PhD from the University of Queensland on the economics of corruption. So welcome to the show. What a great PhD. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. A fruitful area of research in Australia. I'm surprised that you haven't been run out of town. I guess uh, the only reactions I've had from sort of insiders is saying, yeah, tell us something we don't know, like you're just describing the day today. So I think that's a good reaction, means I'm I'm getting close to the mark in understanding how the game of grey corruption is played. But um, yeah, I think I'm just a small target. Well, you loom large because you did co-author a book with Paul Freitas called The Game of Mates. And... Anyone who has any interest in how the top end of town manages to bleed the rest of the nation (laughs) needs to read this book, which is all about, I guess, what you'd describe as systemic corruption. Political favouritism, yeah, is probably the better one because a lot of it is legal and that's that's the shocking thing. And we often see this when politicians are asked difficult questions about why did you give money to these marginal seats to protect your mates. And they always revert back to the story that nothing I've done is illegal. I followed all the laws. And, I mean, that's true. Mm. They did. We should change the laws. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why I call it the study of political favoritism or or grey corruption. You know, it would be corruption if we had better laws, but it's not. But it's the same economic outcome of making society less fair and and less prosperous. In your book, you certainly cover a wide range of industries in which this favouritism takes place. Um, But just for for now, I would like to zero in on the superannuation. Yep. Part of the reason for that is that I got quite surprised the other day that I found myself in agreement with a climate-denying anti-abortionist LNP senator from Queensland, Jared Rennick. Another another point of note here is Labor always go that, you know, superannuation is going to guarantee a, a, a decent retirement. It is not going to guarantee a decent retirement for low-income earners. I found myself nodding along (laughs) to his description of the superannuation industry. This dead, stinking carcass called superannuation. Which he managed to air in Parliament when they were discussing a reform to the $3 trillion superannuation sector. And I guess I was just so surprised to find myself in agreement with the senator that I thought I'd better get you in to find out if I haven't gone completely <laughs> off the rails here. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you managed to catch any of that debate. I, I did listen to that speech and I'll let you know that I do know Jared Rennick personally and have had conversations with him about superannuation. And I guess I would um, encourage you to... Uh, Listen to his ideas because he's thought them through independently and he's not someone who follows the party line. He He's genuinely there to think for himself. And I think if we had more people in parliament like that, we'd get much better outcomes because most of the game in politics is, is towing the party line, you know, slagging off the other team, regardless of the content 
of the policy. So I, I would say the, the parliament is better for having him and people like him. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm a true liberal because I think that people should have the choice as to whether or not they want to invest in superannuation. Now, Jared certainly has a way with words. <laughs> you know, two types of people in this country, there are the battlers and the blowhards. But for Labor to be sitting here complaining about the battlers being shafted, if you're serious about the battlers being shafted, let the battlers keep their own money. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of uh, senators and, and politicians from Queensland bring their colourful language down to Parliament and, and uh, tell it like it is in the most creative of ways. I like that as well. Mm-hmm. But Jared is a, he's a businessman. He's been an accountant for a long time. And I, and I must say, I did a, fi- a Master's of Finance and, you know, uh, uh, there was one subject on superannuation. I failed the assignment. Luckily, I still passed the exam because I slagged off superannuation then. I was never in favour of superannuation from the get-go. I can remember the August 91 budget when it first came in because it was my first year of working. I'd just finished a Bachelor of Commerce the year before, had a hex debt, right, where I got brainwashed, I had to pay to be brainwashed because, you know, I was taught about efficient market hypothesis and that, but that's another story for another day. And isn't it funny how MMT, this, I guess it's associated with somewhat of a lefty political approach, has found this common ground with a senator, the right-wing hard-headed accountant, <laughs> <laughs> And that's because once you start looking at the numbers at the end of the day, you realise that superannuation, it's the most resource-intensive accounting exercise ever invented. (laughs) We employ more people to uh, man the spreadsheets of superannuation than we do for the whole uh, military in Australia. Wow. So in terms of the diversion of resources away from productive activities, we've decided we need a second army, a whole second military. <laughs> They're going to fight the spreadsheet battle right. in the big office towers of the capital cities, and they're going to essentially trade the same set of assets with each other, pretend that they know what's going on, <laughs> pay each other bonuses for for market changes that they had nothing to do with, all at the same time having no ability as a system to actually functionally help people's retirement. You have just completely verified what I heard uh, Senator Rennick say, which is it just promotes this crazy, what he called paper shuffling. (laughs) You know, paperwork doing this, paperwork doing that. We've become a nation of paper shufflers. Yeah, it is quite literally paper shuffling. And from the MMT perspective, the totally sensible thing to do is think, well, having enough money is never a problem for society because money is just an accounting system. It's always a question of production and distribution. Mm -hmm. So from the MMT lens, you can ask, well, how is having shareholders swap shares for cash continuously and change the price of assets in asset markets, how is that helping society look after old people? (laughs) Now, MMT economist Dr. Stephen Hale, who we have had on this show before, back in 2017, he wrote an article criticising superannuation. He described it as an innocent fraud. Yes, Stephen's totally, totally right on this. According to Dr. Hale, the system 
is fraudulent in the sense that it just doesn't do what it claims to be doing because that's not how the economy works. So we know from modern monetary theory that we don't need to find the money to pay for the costs of an ageing population. The Australian Federal Government can create the money out of thin air as it needs to. So if we need to build more retirement facilities, the problem is not finding the money. The problem is finding the construction workers and the bricks and mortar. So the other way it's fraudulent is it sells itself as reducing the burden on taxpayers. And the other thing we know from modern monetary theory, of course, is that none of the social security payments come out of taxpayer money. That's also not how the economy works. There is no pile of money building up somewhere that is the taxpayer money. So when taxpayers pay their money to the government, it just gets written off. It just disappears back into the keyboard from whence it came. (laughs) And the superannuation system is also fraudulent, according to Dr. Stephen Hale, because it actually does nothing, nothing to provision for the aged. So all of this paper shuffling, all of these tax concessions achieves nothing. It, it baffles me that we've even pretended that it helps retirement. What we need for the aged are the goods and services that they're going to consume. So all the food, clothing, health care that they are no longer helping to produce because they're retired, it's these goods and services that we need. And the solution to that The only solution is to increase the productivity of the workers who are left in the workforce. So when we look at youth unemployment, that's one of the things contributing to de-skilling our workforce and undermining the amount of productivity we'll have in the future to provide the goods and services that all the old people will need. And I I hope the MMT is can be a bit noisier about this in public mm. because it's one of the biggest biggest wastes of resources in the country right now. I mean, you might say, oh, you know, buying a $100 billion set of submarines is a waste. Well, that's only three years of super fees. <laughs> no submarines are going to last ages. Right? Yeah, at least you've got a bit of steel to show at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, at least you've got some submarines, you know, All we have now are 30,000 people sitting on computers with spreadsheets. And he had some other critiques. When Bob Hawke said that superannuation was going to be uh, used to invest in Australian manufacturing. Well, that never happened, did it? It's lowering actual real productivity in the economy. Do you see any kind of connection like that? You're soaking away spending power from people. 40 or $50 billion that people have earned from their jobs that they can't spend. And that soaks away demand for, you know, retail goods, consumer durables, home renovations, all those things. And therefore, it slows business investment. And we know it does because what did we do when we thought the economy was going to crash? We let people spend their super. Right. Now, imagine if you did that day in, day out, every single day. (laughs) You would have higher demand and higher investment and build more houses and upgrade all the cars and furniture and businesses that supply all these things because we'd be circulating money, more money. Maybe superannuation is the inadvertent degrowth that the ecological economists are looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. As an accountant, you're trained to think, well, you know, where does this money come from? All payments come from somewhere and go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And when you start thinking like that, Mm. you think, 
hang on a minute, that's $3 trillion workers don't have to spend right now and quite a few of them are going to be dead before they get it and quite a few of them are going to be poorer now than what they're going to be when they're allowed to access the super. It's the people on the low incomes, I'm telling you now, who work the hardest in this country. They'll probably drive further to work every day to get there, back again. You know, if they get a flat tyre and they've got to pay 400 bucks for a tyre, I'm telling you, that'll hurt their budget a lot. And you know what? For the bottom third of households, when they turn now 66 and get the age pension, it's a pay rise. <laughs> for one in three people, when they get on the age pension, they start earning more than they had previously earned. They have more money in their pocket. And we're here saying... We should make these poor people who are poorer than age pensioners 10% poorer before they get to age 66. Yeah. Why don't you let people just put it in their house? Because that's what most people and a common man and a battler do understand are real assets. They don't live in the land of the blowhards. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. The thing about the super system it makes the inequality of working life incomes worse in retirement. All it is is a tax advantage savings tool. And so the people who have the most money benefit the most from tax advantage savings. Right, so we drop $40 billion a year that go to the wealthy, that go to the wealthy, right? It's only the top 10 to 20% of the people who get these uh, taxation concessions. And you know, right, that the tax breaks for super are roughly the size of the whole age pension. Wow. The whole age pension. We could remove the tax breaks for super and double the age pension and no effect on the government budget balance. Mm -hmm. That gives you an idea of how much we are spending collectively through tax breaks uh, on making rich people richer through the super system. So it is a completely inequitable completely inequitable scheme and it highlights that the claim that super helps the budget mm -hmm. that's absolute nonsense <laughs> right because you're spending as much as you're spending on the age pension on this <laughs> this pretend game of getting people off the pension and all the modeling says well we're not going to get people off the pension because do you know what the people who didn't earn enough during their working life they can't put enough into super and Senator Jared Rennick points out that half the population is going to continue to rely on the aged pension. So long story short, we've got 50% of the people in this country who are still never going to come off the pension. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. Dr. Cameron Murray, you describe superannuation as an area of where these things called grey gifts happen. So I'm wondering if you would mind explaining what a grey gift is and how superannuation manages to act as a grey gift. Okay, so um, a grey gift is essentially a gift that you can give to another party and in doing so get themselves a personal benefit. Mm. Uh, and those decision makers in parliament, they essentially, on net, 
once you subtract all the nonsense of what happens, the net effect is they change a rule, those people get free money. Mm. And that free money didn't come from the people who changed the rule to give it to them, but from the rest of us. Mm. The most interesting thing about grey gifts is that people who give them, it doesn't really matter how much cost they impose on society to give a gift. That's such an important point. Mm. So if you um, want to give a gift of $10 million to a certain group of people, you will be happily imposing costs of hundreds of millions of dollars on everybody else in order to give that $10 million gift. Mm-hmm. It's been known about this concept for a long time. Okay. I've just sort of repackaged it and applied it to a lot of the political decisions going on in Australia. Mm. So when you change a, a law that, for example, requires people to pay more super, um, you're essentially changing how much money super fund managers make, how many seats there are on boards for union officials to have, how many fees get soaked up from this. So essentially, that is pure economic rent. That's just a free gift. Mm. So for superannuation, we've just had the decision to increase the compulsory rate. We've increased it from 95 to 10%. So you've got fees in the super industry around $30 billion a year. So one twentieth of that is $1.5 billion per year as a, as a gift to your mates from doing that. Mm. And, of course, we pay for that. Everyone who pays into super pays for that. One thing I noticed in the controversy surrounding Senator Rennick was that uh, a lot of the criticism was coming from the trade unions. And <laughs> and I could see from the look on your face that you're not surprised. Well, the unions have become much more powerful because decision makers in union super funds get to direct now billions of dollars of investment, allocating their members' money, a lot of them don't actually realise that it's their own money. They think it's this magical pot that they've got from the employers. And so it's also a way for them to promote how awesome they are by saying, I've got you this magical pot of money that you wouldn't have got otherwise. Well, I saw the ACTU even describing superannuation as a right of workers. Oh, yeah. It's a religion. They've totally lost their minds. (laughs) They literally do not care that any day they want, just give the cash to workers to spend today. Mm. They don't care that one in six of their workers will be dead before they get their super. They just do not care because they're getting rewarded for thinking a certain way. And when humans get rewarded for thinking a certain way, they simply cannot comprehend something different. We're talking about the superannuation that only looks after the rivers of gold for both the union funds and the banks. And so... That's why you end up with people like Jared Rennick being the only people willing to say, say how it is in Parliament. He gets slammed for it. He absolutely gets slammed. There are no rewards to him. All cost. Their rate of return when um, CBA, just before they sold it, before they you know, got done over with the Banking Royal Commission, their rate of return on their fund investment division was 66%. I mean, that is an incredible return on equity. Uh, And it just goes to show what a racket superannuation is. It is nothing but rivers of gold for the blowhards, banks, unions, whatever. I don't care. Think about someone in a union movement trying to put their hand up and say, hey, guys, you know that's our money. Maybe we should just have it in our pocket. Imagine putting your hand up in a union and and trying to say that. Mm. You'll get slammed. You'll never get to another union meeting. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. 
as I've been saying, the left-right stuff is outdated. And so you see, you know, the right of politics wants to subsidize coal power because they love government subsidies and they love governments intervening in the economy. We've got the left side wanting to privatize retirement Mm -hmm. because they love (laughs) markets. It's a topsy-turvy world we're in. (laughs) Now, it's kind of weird for me that the left of politics, again, the left-right is a bit outdated, but the Labor Party is somehow trying to privatize the retirement system and make it rely on asset markets. I mean, that's madness. Mm-hmm. We, we've had some kind, of, um, some kind of transformation of this philosophy of the political left when we know we have this brilliant age pension system that the administration costs us so low as well. The universal retirement scheme in this country is called the pension. And it's been around for a lot longer than superannuation, and it worked fine. To manage the age pension, only like 1% to 2% of the cost of spending is actually on administering it. It's so easy to put money in people's accounts. You don't need that 30,000 spreadsheet army. (laughs) You need no one. There's there's only 6,000 people working in the department, right, that manages this, and they manage all these other schemes as well. Mm. The one thing we know government's very, very good at is just depositing money in accounts from the treasury. That's like the... <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a core kind of um, function. And so we should go, well, you know what? We have this amazing system that can cheaply just put money in people's accounts and solve the whole retirement issue. Yeah. If, if we're going to agree that this thing is a stinking rotten carcass that should be killed stone cold dead, <laughs> which I just, I'm not sure how you kill a carcass, but let's go for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering... It seems like there are solutions that people are proposing. I think Stephen Hale was all for stopping the contributions, which is a way of stopping the industry. So I'm just wondering where you think the way to go is. Um, My solution would be people can spend their super. So you pass a law that said all super payments now must be deposited into people's normal accounts that they get paid in, and, um, and that's it. That's all you do. (laughs) Pretty easy. It is very, very easy. What you can do to get that money out of super is let people spend up to a certain amount each year until they've got it all out. Mm -hmm. So you can have like a $10,000 a year transfer limit and then you just say, okay, no more payments into super. You can take out $10,000 a year starting today whenever you want until it's empty. Mm Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's it's going to be a huge stimulus, just like the super withdrawals we saw last year. What's interesting is because you'd be taxed on that pay rise rather than getting the discounted rate into super, you'd see this huge recycling of tax through the government as well. So they would feel empowered, uh, not budget constrained. Oh, it's hard to know if anyone genuinely cares about the budget in government, let's be honest. I think it's mostly an excuse <laughs> to do what you want. And not do what you don't want. So What a heresy. <laughs> we sort of pretend that budgets constrain governments, but no, governments constrain budgets. So I think you'd see a surprise amount of tax revenue. It would be very hard for a government at that period to say, I'm going to tighten my belt and reduce the age pension when the economy's booming. They couldn't use the tighten our belt excuse, yeah. And you would have this huge buy-in, I think, politically. It would be um, a system that would be hard to undermine. And I think what's happened in the last 20 years is there's been this crazy fear campaign by the Labor Party Mm. um, making people think that the pension's not going to be there when they retire. I'm like, you're a political left party. You're basically saying you're terrible politicians. 
you're basically saying we will be in opposition forever and we will let them unwind the pension that's what you're saying because if you're not saying that you're saying we want to unwind the pension you're listening to unemployed workers fight back a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3cr community radio On this issue of fear and retirement, there's this 648-page document called The Final Report of the Retirement Income Review. And it was put out by the Treasury in July 2020 and signed off by Josh Frydenberg, our Australian Treasurer. And you can find it online. Now, if you make it to page 401... You will find some survey results by the government's own Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Less than half the people surveyed, 48%, agreed the age pension will exist when they reach retirement. So that means half all Australians believe the age pension will somehow disappear. Of those aged under 55, only 37% agree the age pension will exist when they reach retirement. So the younger you are, the less likely you are to believe the age pension will exist when you retire. In fact, the report says people have a deep-seated fear the aged pension will no longer exist when they retire. Have you ever felt that this country might not be able to afford the age pension? Have you ever had this uneasy feeling that the age pension probably won't exist by the time you retire or it will be at a meagre amount if it does exist. That's the way propaganda operates. It insinuates itself into our shared common sense. So don't forget the Australian Federal Government, it will never be unable to pay for the age pension, whatever the rate. So given these fears, you might expect the report to reassure us that the government faces no purely financial constraint when it comes to paying out the age pension, you might expect the report to spell out very clearly the only reason the age pension might diminish or disappear is due to a government decision. Well, I could not find these kinds of reassurances in the report, and you'd be hard-pressed to find these reassurances in any of the progressive commentary on the report. What the report did say... The retirement income system currently has neither an agreed objective nor an agreed role for the means-tested age pension or compulsory superannuation. In other words, it seems no one is willing to go so far as to say whether they think the point of superannuation is to replace the age pension. And the report does say the system should be cost-effective for taxpayers in achieving adequate outcomes. So I think about how Cameron told us that running the age pension takes 6,000 people versus 30,000 people to run superannuation. It seems that neither Senator Jared Rennick or Dr Cameron Murray would call superannuation equitable and efficient. I did see progressive economic commentators hailing a headline statement out of this report. And I quote, 
Notwithstanding an ageing population, government expenditure on age pension is projected to fall from 2.5% to 2.3% of GDP by 2060. Now, assuming our society is still intact by then, despite the climate crisis, this is actually not good news. Those tax concessions for the wealthy are going to rise and the spending on the age pension is going to fall as a proportion of GDP. It seems this effectively means the government knows it'll be giving more money to wealthy retirees and less money to low-income retirees. Now, why might it be giving less income to low-income retirees? The report gives the game away a bit by saying this shift is a result of higher superannuation balances and impact of the means test, particularly the assets test, in determining eligibility for the age pension. In other words, they're going to squeeze more people off the age pension using an asset test. And it also sounds like they want more people to fund themselves, despite the apparent lack of stated purpose that the report mentioned earlier. So was there any good news in the report? Well, there was some. They are saying the aged pension is working. The aged pension, they say, combined with other support like healthcare, is effective in ensuring most Australians will achieve a minimum standard of living in retirement, in line with community standards. But they also note renters and involuntary retirees Involuntary retirees being those who can't find a job after the age of 55 experience higher levels of financial stress and poverty. Now that financial stress might have something to do with our housing crisis and the low level of job seeker payments. Now back at two thirds of the poverty line. So with all of this, don't forget the Australian Federal Government could, any time it chooses, raise the rates on any of the social security payments, including the age pension, as we saw it do with the job seeker rates during the COVID lockdowns. And, and so if you want to have an adult conversation about politics, you have to drop the idea that there's some kind of ideology or consistent view about the world driving political parties. No, political parties are just groups of the hairless apes <laughs> that signal to each other to show loyalty and to look out for each other. That's it. Mm -hmm. Giving grey gifts to our friends, imposing costs on others, that's all it is. Um, and everything else is backfilling stories to justify what we've done. So there's a new political party that sprung up the new Liberals who follow the MMT line on their economic thinking. So that's why I wanted to talk to them. And I was actually going to ask you if if you had any advice for new political players going into that game. Uh, I, I've actually run twice for an election in Queensland with a small new political party. And let me share the lessons. First, politics is dirty from top to bottom. You think you're going to a community meeting and you think this is grassroots this is where we get to talk to people. No, if there's a major party there, they will stack the meeting. They'll have thugs at the door, kick people out. Mm. Uh, you think you're having a, a nice weekend election. 
No, the night before, the parties have security on the polling booths to stop the other parties ripping off their posters. Um, the post office, they deliver everyone's flyers for political parties. No, they do not. Mm. Party hacks who work there will throw your flyers in the bin if you're a new political party or an independent and not deliver them. These are all things that happen in an uncontested, no big deal Queensland election that I was involved in. Mm. So that's one thing. And my second thing is politics is mostly theatre. You do not want someone who thinks be on stage. You want an actor. So the best thing for your new party to do you know, I call it the Hugh Jackman theory of politics, is go and get Hugh Jackman, <laughs> put him up as your candidate and just give him a script and let him charm the hosts of the morning breakfast show and say the lines because, do you know what, it actually doesn't matter what you say. The content of what you say doesn't matter. It's the show that you put on that matters. Oh, my gosh. Third, I guess the third thing is new parties are full of people who are pissed off. But they're all pissed off for slightly different reasons. So it's a bit like herding cats, getting all these people to come together. Very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So good luck to all these parties. Uh, I think it's great. But I think I've gone a step further in my thinking is that we, we don't want political parties. They're the problem. What we want is just decisions being made on our behalf. We should just get our politicians like we get our juries for criminal trials. We should just send letters out randomly and say... It's your time. You're going to get a nice little salary. Come and be a politician for four years and with a hundred and something of your mates, deliberate on what you think is a good thing or not. And you'll get a nice random selection mm -hmm. and party machinery will be neutered. I guess the corruption goes to a level of the senior permanent officials. Mm -hmm. We think everything happens at the political level, but at the top of the bureaucracies. There's... Oh, some of us grew up watching Yes Minister. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. At the top of the bureaucracies is where the, the real game is hidden. The politics is the show. What you're pointing to sounds a little bit like what Extinction Rebellion are talking about, which are citizens' assemblies, which are randomly selected. Correct. I think they're, they're great tools. I'm a huge fan of sortition, so um, by random lot selection of decision makers. Something people can look into? Sortition. Yeah. Um, and Queensland's an interesting case because we don't have an upper house in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, we got rid of that 100 years ago. Um, but we could reinstate it by lot and have Australia's first experiment with, um, with Citizens' Assembly as the upper house. Oh, wow. What a vision. Well, I might even move back to Queensland. <laughs> the chamber's there. It's empty. It's full of seats. It's ready to go. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. What I was explaining before about dirty politics at the local level, Jared Rennick has the same thing because he's not towing the line with his party. Mm. So the smear campaigns that happen and distort what you say. So if you think you know what an independent politician thinks, you do not. You know what... The people who have a career smearing them think. You know, who's the us and them? I'm getting very confused. I don't see myself as left or right politically. I, I have a healthy scepticism of everything. It took me a long time. It's a very difficult journey to think independently and not think what your group thinks. You know, while we will agree on certain MMT issues and super and the accounting and the macroeconomics of it all, we'll disagree on other things. Yeah, I, I end up not being totally accepted in any group, but a little bit accepted in many different groups. Mm -hmm. I think there's some value in 
finding people whose ideas don't correlate well with any particular group because you know they're assessing things independently. And so I try and follow people online um, who are like that, who I know won't just recite what their group is saying, but will actually consider each idea. And that means some of their ideas I'm going to think are crazy. Mm. But at least I know they're thinking for themselves. Well, there's some wise words coming from a renegade economist. (laughs) (laughs) So I really appreciate the time that you gave to this conversation. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, uh, Anne. I really enjoyed it. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fight Back Program. Great program. Great guests. (laughs) Paul Keating, of course, introduced sweeping superannuation reformers back in the 90s. Mr Speaker, this House last night passed the superannuation guarantee levy and doing so it has entrenched in legislation a great reform which will be of great benefit to coming generations of Australians. Ordinary Australians will be able to build a decent nest egg for their retirement as a result of the policies of the Labor movement. People now on average weekly earnings, Mr Speaker, will be able to retire on income twice the old age pension. Twice the old age pension. And at the time that he was bringing in his superannuation policies, the only people that had decent superannuation were public servants, uh, and it was kind of voluntary. Uh, and, and a lot of the reforms they were talking about, when he was talking to his uh, finance minister or his um, treasurer, they thought they were only talking about the superannuation uh, improvements to the public service. And then Keating went, no, 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 we're going to put this across the whole population. Right. So kind of took him by surprise. And, of course, it's regarded by a lot of Labor voters and a lot of people on the left of politics. Superannuation is this uh, marvellous contribution to the welfare of the retiring age population. Mm-hmm. And, and they're very proud of it. People are very very proud of the um, the superannuation. They see it as a, as a left a leftist progressive policy. Right. The unions are especially behind the idea of superannuation. Well, yes, because the, the unions have lost membership and now they're largely funded by the, the industry funds. A large part of the, the union funding comes via superannuation companies, and so they love them. And mm. then when you, when you look at the way superannuation is rolled out, and I, I realised this when I had my business going back in the early 2000s, I had a lot of uh, casual people working for me in, in my events industry, a lot of roadies who would go from this gig to that gig. And there's, there's an exclusion that if you pay somebody less than $400 a week, you don't have to pay any superannuation for them. Mm. So that means that your casual low-paid workforce often don't get any superannuation because they're working at this job and that job and they're never really accumulating enough at any one place to qualify for superannuation. So the whole scheme became totally irrelevant for them. Yeah, well, I had the experience as a casual worker with my superannuation account. I only had a few hundred dollars or something going into that account and I am sure that I ticked the box that said I did not want life insurance, but it didn't go through somehow. And then when I looked at it later, it all disappeared through fees. I think the only reason I knew it had gone back to zero is I got a letter from the superannuation company saying, sorry, you've got no more money in your account. <laughs> all gone. So so effectively, you've salary sacrificed to this fund that is supposed to provide for your retirement and the insurance companies have pinched it. Yep. The, the conservatives were always against superannuation 
the Howard and the rest of it. They wanted to dismantle it. But what they did instead was they kind of hijacked superannuation and made it this tax haven for people who had excess money. So rich people who had too much money could uh, shelter themselves from tax by investing in superannuation. It's morphed. Superannuation has, has morphed as a, a vehicle that was supposed to be there for all to enhance their retirement to an, a tax avoidance uh, scheme for the rich. Mm. And then, of course, the, the, the really big ideological uh, twist with superannuation is that it, it means that conservative governments will say, oh, we've got a superannuation policy, therefore you don't need the pension, the age pension. So we're going to wind back the age pension. Mm. Now, as MMTers, you and I, and we understand that, that the government has no, no financial constraint, mm-hmm. One of the nicest things that a society could do is look after its its elders. That's what good functioning societies do. And what Keating effectively did with his superannuation policy was privatise retirement. He said, uh, you, know, you all need to look after yourselves now and we're going to give an avenue for conservative governments to reduce their perceived obligation to pay the pension because you're going to look after yourselves now. It gives them a cover for unwinding the pension. Yeah, so it turns into this thing where the pension gets wound back. People who need it the most uh, aren't getting it. The rich uh, uh, get a tax haven, and and this is our superannuation um, uh, position. So it's a stinking rotten carcass, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. So so is is it a progressive lefty thing? Mm. Uh, uh, but there's so much money in it now. How how do you dismantle the system? Well, or what do you do with it? Well, it seemed like a fairly easy solution, as far as I could tell, which is you just stop the contributions, and then you say people can spend their superannuation if they want to. You're listening to Three CR eight five five AM on digital and on the internet. Somebody said to me the other day that the whole reason superannuation started it was actually a way to have the workers take a pay cut. So instead of giving the workers their 3% pay rise, it went into superannuation. Yeah, that was all part of the accord that Hawke and and Keating oversaw with Bill Kelty. They kept wages suppressed and offset it with increased superannuation. So do you think they were genuine about helping people with their retirement or do you think they were just trying to suppress wages? I think they were actually genuine with with trying to to help people in their retirement. Mm. I just don't think they thought it through. <laughs> There's a lot of good things that Keating did, and, and I think he had a good heart. Mm. But his economic head was always focused around his father's business. His father ran a small, light industrial business. I think he made wheelbarrows or something like that. Mm. And Keating always saw that people like his father needed more help. So so he ran the country like a small business, which from modern monetary theory, the school of economic thought... We understand that the country is actually nothing like a small business and nothing like a household. Correct. But also beyond that, his focus of, of who he was trying to help and assist, it wasn't so much your, your nine-to-fiver who's, who's slogging it out. He had a, an entrepreneurial bent uh, in the way that he viewed his economic policies because he was thinking of, of people like his dad, mm. not not like people who go into factories and work and just basic workers. I hate to say this, but it kind of goes with his suits and his E-type jag and, and, and his antiques and the rest of it. <laughs> he had aspirations, didn't he? He, he? he did. And I believe his heart was right. Mm-hmm. But but in hindsight, it's always easier in hindsight. Yeah. 
He's left us with a monster anyway that we need to kill Stone Cold Dead. And speaking of wit and language, I had to say I, I laughed out loud listening to Jared Rennick. Now, now, now tell me about this Jared Rennick fellow because he's a, he's a conservative senator from Queensland. You know, I had a bit of a look at him online and he does seem to have been aligned with the anti-abortionist climate denying crowd. But as Cameron says, he's got the mindset of an accountant. So he understands that money has to come from somewhere and go somewhere. And he understands that when the money's being taken out of people's paychecks, it's not necessarily going back to the workers. I'm just a bit concerned, Anne, because here we are um, at 3CR, Radical Radio is, is what it says at the front there, and we're all, we're all lefties and, and, and uh, progressives, and, but here we are mm-hmm. promoting the, the message <laughs> from a right-wing Queensland senator. I know, I'm a bit worried about my political sanity as well. <laughs> All I can say, all I can say to the listeners is just hang in there, right? Like yep. there, there are some people who might have a few views that you don't agree with, but there's a couple other things that they might be saying which just might make a bit of sense. And I reckon, just from the the small amount I've heard from this Renick fella, he might offend me on many fronts. <laughs> but his thoughts about superannuation actually do coincide with a lot of what we think. I think the lesson of this maybe is that these old political categories of left and right. They don't describe well enough where people are on the political spectrum. It's like the, the football team mentality that people take to their political parties. It's their team and you, you either support them wholeheartedly or you're a turncoat and you're a traitor. I've always held the view, and I'm sure many of our listeners also hold the same view, politicians come and go. It's the policies that stay. I don't care where the policy comes from. So if this Rennick guy has got a few things that I don't agree with because he's a right-wing Queensland senator... I'm not going to write off everything he's got to say because if his if his views on superannuation make sense, they make sense. Mm. And I was wondering also, Kevin Cameron was describing his experience of dabbling in electoral politics, and I wondered if any of that resonated with your own experience. Yeah, I ran as a Senate candidate in the last election, in the 2019 election in Victoria, for a mob called the Australian Workers Party, who. Uh, have an alignment with MMT as well. Very progressive. You talk about the political spectrum. We were way left. We were further left than the Greens in the way that we thought. But uh, yeah, small parties, it's an interesting uh, interesting field because it's internally it's interesting because you've got people with strong minds, strong opinions, not necessarily strong minds. Um, <laughs> uh, and you, you do get this, this kind of loyalty to the team that that overrides common sense and, uh, and, and practical policy. You know, you, you're either for us or you're a Guinness. In uh, the book, The Game of Mates, they're describing how the elites are siphoning off half the wealth of the nation, but they don't call it a conspiracy. So they manage to avoid saying either it's a conspiracy or it's a matter of having these really rotten, evil people in power. Instead, they're saying this is a case of how group dynamics operate In fact, it's something that most people would fall into because these people just see themselves as doing favours for their mates, which is a really natural thing that most of us do. Yeah. And so the problem happens when the the favours that they're doing, which is giving each other these grey gifts, the problem is that these grey gifts belong to the public, not to the individual who's giving them. So that's where the problem starts. So they're giving a gift on our behalf that we didn't agree to that we probably wouldn't have endorsed anyway. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It took me a while to get my head around what a grey gift is, like to understand what that is. And one of the examples that Cameron uses uh, is, imagine 
an intersection, like a road, a busy road, and you've got this intersection, and so you put traffic lights in, and so you're controlling when people can cross the road. So now by creating a regulation around how you can move, you've created a potential grey gift. If someone could get hold of that and then have the discretion to say who can cross the road when, then they could start selling the ability to cross the road. Let's say uh, I'm approaching that intersection on a regular basis and I'm always going to turn right. I might have somebody to to give me a favour just to make sure that whenever I'm turning right, I'm, I'm going to get a nice, easy run. So then you'd find that some people who want to turn right never get to turn right, and some people get to turn right just whenever they happen to show up at the intersection. <laughs> and of course, while I'm turning right, everybody else is, is being held up uh, while I go that way. So it, it's, it might be a gift for me, but it's an inconvenience for everybody else. That's a good analogy. I like that analogy, Anne. So they happen all through our society, all through our education system, our defence, our tax system, our property rights, everywhere you look. And so we need to understand when the regulations are creating these gifts and how to keep them in the public domain and not just give them to individuals. To that end, I would say that being a lobbyist is often more practical than than joining a political party because as a lobbyist you can uh, appeal to various political parties and you can be quite effective that way. So I think um, protest groups and lobby groups, that's important. And discussions like this are important because that's how people become involved in the lobby groups and that's how they put pressure on the political parties and that's what changes policy. That's the job done. Well, next show we will be returning to the, the joys of uh, electoral politics. And uh, we'll be speaking with another, yet another micro party, the New Liberals. Now, the New Liberals are interesting. Mm. They are an interesting party. They understand their modern monetary theory, so they do understand how the currency works and that the federal government doesn't have to tax in order to spend and it doesn't have to borrow money in order to spend, but it actually creates money when it spends. (laughs) Well, that's a great foundation for any political party. If they understand how the economy actually works, uh, that's probably not such a bad thing, Anne, I would have thought. Mm. Yeah, so it'd be interesting to hear from them because, of course, they have called themselves the New Liberals and I didn't really prioritise wanting to know about them just for the fact that that was their name. (laughs) Don't turn away just because they say the word new liberals and you go, oh, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. It, this is this is a, an interesting space to watch. And I reckon we're going to have lots to say about that um, uh, next week when, when we have that show. Next week, talking to the new liberals. Looking forward to that. Excellent. But we're going to make way. Mafalda's coming up next. And uh, so we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. See you later, Anne. See you then, Kevin. So, you know, if you want to get serious about protecting the battlers in this country, it is time to kill superannuation stone cold dead. been listening to unemployed workers fight back join us the second and fourth friday of each and every month as part of the sewer show on 3cr listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au we thank all our guests and i thank you Anne. and i thank you kevin oh no the pleasure was all mine oh no kevin the pleasure was all mine you mean all the pleasure was yours 
Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having the pleasure. That's great. It's really, you have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.